Hello, this is Guardian Daily. It's Friday the 9th of October and I'm Michael White in Manchester where David Cameron has told the country he's ready to govern. We will be tested. I will be tested. I am ready for that and so I believe are the British people. So yes, there is a steep climb ahead. But I tell you this, the view from the summit will be worth it. And I'm John Dennis in London with the rest of the news. As Royal Mail staff vote to strike, we ask the head of the Communication Workers' Union why. Modernisation is not about the abolition of Sunday collections. Modernisation is not about taking the second delivery away and not replacing it with a better and more improved service. Modernisation is about improved paying conditions. And we look back at some of the people who've occupied Trafalgar Square's fourth plinth as part of the artist Anthony Gormley's installation, One and Other. I'm Michael White in the Manchester Central Arena, where all around me people are dismantling the temporary structures that made up this year's Conservative Party conference. And after a week of dishing out bitter medicine on cuts, pay freezes and hikes in the price of high-strength lager, David Cameron told the British public to look on the bright side of life as well. I see a country with entrepreneurs everywhere, bringing their ideas to life and bringing our towns and cities to life too. I see a country where it's not just about the quantity of money, it's about the quality of life as we lead the world in greening our environment. I see a country where we're less afraid to walk the streets alone because we know that right and wrong have been brought back to law and order. And I see a country where the poorest children go to the best schools, not the worst schools, because birth should never be a barrier. No. No, we will never make it happen if we pull in different directions, follow our own interests, take care of only ourselves. But if we pull together, come together, work together, we will get through this together. And when we look back, we will say, not that the government made it happen, not that the minister made it happen, it was the businesswoman that made it happen, the police officer that made it happen, the father that made it happen, the teacher that made it happen. You made it happen. Cameron turns 43 today, but will the verdict on one of the most important speeches of his career make happy birthday reading? We'll hear from columnist Jonathan Friedland and the Observer's political editor Gabby Hensliff in a moment. But first, here's what Dominic Grieve and George Osborne thought. Well, I was delighted with the speech. He's covered a very large amount of ground and he's set the scene for exactly the sort of national renewal programme we need. And uh, his comments on identity cards, on the control freak society in which we live, and his desire to set people free, I hope will have a real resonance for large numbers of people. What David was doing today was holding out the prospect that if we get through these years, there are those sunny uplands, and that's what he was talking about, and showed you that, you know, the values he has, the family, the community, the country that he cares about, are what's going to guide him as Prime Minister. And I thought it was also, you know, striking how he kept referring to his shadow cabinet, you know, myself included, but across the shadow cabinet, showing that this is not just a one-man band, this is a real team. And I think people who've looked at our conference this week can see a party ready to govern now it's up to the British people. 
and as the delegates filed out of the hall and headed for home, all fired up, they heaped praise on their leader. Excellent. What did you like about it? It was so down-to-earth measured and showing what, the future. What was the message? That, you know, put the trust in us and we'll help the country. Trust the people, I thought it was. It sounded a bit like Winston Churchill, 1951. What about your friend there in a very smart jacket? I thought it was Looks very like good. Yours. I think the message is that there's a lot of work to do. It's not going to be easy. But in the end, we should have a better government than we got now. Uh, and what did he say about the need to bear down on debt? Were you persuaded by that? Do you think you, he's gone far enough? There's enormous I figures involved. I think he's gone as far as he can at the moment, but until we know next year what the actual debt is, it's impossible to really calculate precisely what we're going to do. Quick answer here. What did you think of that? I think it was from the heart, actually. I think he was speaking about what he really believed, especially when he was talking about the health service and talking about poor people. And it's child. His child above all, it's easy to romanticise a political leader and there's a lot of calculation because there has to be and that's the game we're in. But when he's talking about that, I think he's somebody who's was taught by his life how what happens to poor people, what happens to unfortunate people. It was a big surprise for him. It changed him, it shaped him, it made him a better man. Thank you very much. Excuse me, can you tell us what you thought of that? Oh, absolutely electrifying speech, extremely good. Is a real sense of going out on a journey, uh, you know, to, to, to uh, together as a, as a nation. So you're all fired up. I'm very fired up. Very fired up. Out canvassing this weekend. What was specifically did you take from it? What were the messages? I, I, what we're really facing is we have a huge responsibility to put the nation back on its tracks, but we've got to do it together as a nation. We've got to put responsibility back to people in communities, and I think that's the key thread. He's very strong on that. He said, "Big government's the part of the problem, not the answer." Uh, what about the costs of it all? He was saying we're bearing down on spending, but he was also saying we've got to look after the poorest. He sounded very sincere. Looking after poor people costs a lot of money. Gordon Brown's taught us that. Yeah, well, we've got to start somewhere. We've got to rebuild things. We've got to rebuild business. And he talked a lot about business because we've got to generate the revenue to pay for the public services. Gabby Hinsliff and Jonathan Friedland are with me now. Personally, I thought the speech worth about six out of ten. Not Cameron's best but what did you think, Johnny? I agree with you. It was quite low energy uh, by comparison with some of his other performances. I think his message was uh, the way the country has been run is wrong and I can make it better. The flaw has been channeling Ronald Reagan too much government. Government's the problem, not the solution. Uh, and then the missing piece was, but here's how I'm going to do it differently. The how was the big hole, I felt, in this speech. And the how is the expensive bit and the difficult bit, that's the problem. There was, there was a little tweak on the big state, small state argument. It's no longer big state versus big state, small state. It's big state versus strengthening society, which sounds a bit cosier and friendlier. But there wasn't a real sense of how. I did think it was a bit of a safety first speech, a speech that didn't want to rock the boat, didn't want to screw up the poll lead. And I think he could have been braver. I think George Osborne was braver. So lots of questions there, but the tone of it seemed to go down well with the audience. I was surprised repeatedly when David Cameron said, notwithstanding your point, Gabby, that we've got to look after the poor. You know, Labour still have the arrogance to think that they are the ones who will fight poverty and deprivation. On Monday, when we announced our plan to get Britain working, you know what Labour called it? Callous. Excuse me? Who has made the poorest poorer? Who left youth unemployment higher? 
Who made inequality greater? No, not the wicked Tories. You, Labour, you are the ones who have done it to this society. Don't you dare lecture us on poverty. You have failed and it falls to the modern Conservative Party to help the poorest in our country today. And at that point, they all got to their feet and, you know, gave them a standing ovation, which one didn't necessarily expect to have seen from, from Tory conferences in the past. They did say before the conference, judges on our attitude to the poor, and they clearly decided to stick to their message. That was also <coughs> rhetorically so effective, the turning, looking in the camera, addressing Gordon Brown, don't you dare lecture us on poverty and the poorest. That was one of the few actual sort of showbiz flourishes in the speech, and it was very effective. But it was one of many, I thought, raids on Labour, liberal, progressive territory by David Cameron in this speech. He was tickling Guardian readers' tummy quite a few times in the speech, saying, I don't like the surveillance state, uh, I care about climate change, the NHS will absolutely be as it is, Sure Start's going to stay, our colleague Polly Toynbee will be very happy about that. There was a long list of things like that. The difference was he was saying, I'm going to achieve all these things, Sure Start apart, with Thatcherite means. Uh, I'm going to achieve those ends with Thatcherite means, and that's quite a change. Well, that's the difficulty. I'm sure Polly won't be delighted because she'll be delving, even as we speak, into the small print. What does he mean by saving sure. Sure Start? Not too much, I suspect. Uh, uh, ditto uh, uh, much of it. And Guardian readers are really cross with Gordon Brown for failing to deliver on poverty or even on third world aid. Will say, hang on a minute, uh, Labour inherited an appalling situation in 1997 in terms of poor children and poor families and has been sort of trying to run up a down escalator, the inequality debate and the enormous economic bubble we've had in the 10 or 12 years since. Where does the solution from David Cameron, he sounded very sincere, but where's the beef? I mean, you're right, but just at first blush, he's done what Gabby said he needed to do, which is to show they care about the poor. That's already a shift from where the Tories were seen 15, 20 years ago. So the where's the beef in the detail? That will be the next phase of this argument. Surely that's where Labour must go, uh, is how do you possibly do this? But all these wonderful things, just kicking away a few quangos does not achieve those ends. And he's left himself some big hostages to fortune. The idea that the poorest children in Britain will go to the very best schools, that's a metric that the, this government is, Tory government is never ever going to be able to achieve. Um, yes, yeah, so that struck me in the, the same way. Gabby, he, he felt slightly sorry for him, not very much, because he'd had his big fox shot, the rabbit out of the hat, uh, General Danat. He had to get that out of the way. It was an anticlimax, of course. But he did tie it in with the Afghan campaign, and I thought that was quite effective for him to saying, you know, real war, real blood out there. We've got to look after our troops. Yeah, I think he should have had a bigger fox, to be honest, for the last speech, last conference speech on the eve of government than General Danat as joining the Tories. But... Um, but you're right, the, the Afghan passage was effective. The one thing I wondered about was that he did exactly the same as Gordon Brown last week, which is drove the hall to its feet, let's have a standing ovation for our armed forces, clap, 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 our brave boys. Many Tories felt when Gordon Brown did that that it was tacky, that it was politicians using soldiers to advance their own cause. I wonder how they will feel about their own leader doing the same. I generally find that people find their own leaders doing the same doesn't count in quite the same way. Small detail, he also organised a, a round of applause for Norman Tebbit's wife, who was seriously injured as we all know in that dreadful bomb in Brighton in October 1984 and I wondered what that's about you don't doubt the sincerity of the sentiment but you also know that Norman Tebbit is a very severe critic of uh, uh, David Cameron's style and substance of leadership and won't have liked this speech he'll say it's warm words 
I think he threw very little uh, to the right, hard right of his party, and maybe, I hadn't thought of it at the time, but maybe you're right, this was just a little bone to them, a uh, symbolic one, just to honour uh, the Tebbit name in a Conservative hall, um, because he didn't do much red meat. There was a little bit on the European Union, but nothing he used like... The, he used the R word for referendum. I didn't expect him to do that. He was misleading them, of course. He's had no intention of having a referendum, but let that pass. Did anything else leap out at you, Gabby? I think we've probably covered the main points. The one thing I was I was struck by actually, because it slightly jarred. Two things I was struck by because it jarred with the rest of the argument. Firstly, his reference to the Fiona Pilkington case, and he used that as an example of what he was saying. But you know, society needs strengthening. That instinct to protect the people we love is so strong. Nearly two years ago, it was that instinct, that love, that drove Fiona Pilkington to do something desperate. When I first read of her story in the papers. I found it quite difficult to finish the article. It is one of the saddest things that I ever read. She was so driven to despair by those vile thugs that bullied her and her lovely disabled daughter, Francesca, and by the police that didn't answer her cries for help, that she could only see one way out. She put her daughter in her car, drove to a lay-by, and set it on fire. It was as if no one would protect them, so by ending their lives, she was keeping them safe. No one could hurt them anymore. Just think about what we have allowed to happen in our country. This goes deep. It goes very deep. It is about the breakdown of all those things that are meant to keep us safe. A complete breakdown of responsibility. And then he went from that into sort of somehow Fiona Pilkington's case was all the, all the fault of big government and a sort of target culture. And I thought, well, hang on, you haven't explained how you make the leap from that to that. So some work needed on the rhetoric. The other thing I felt was that the references to climate change in Copenhagen felt like they'd been bunged in at the last minute when someone yeah. went, oh, my God, you haven't said anything about the environment. They didn't seem to belong in the speech or to say anything new. I think some people will uh, really uh, chafe, they'll balk at the reference to Fiona Pilkington, feeling he was exploiting that case. He shouldn't be dragged into politics. Others, though, I wonder will find something about Cameron, which is he is emotionally intelligent. I mean, just the way he speaks, the way he spoke about that, saying what that would feel like to be that the only way of guaranteeing the safety of your child is to take your own life and her life. I think he does show he's got an emotional literacy, he's David Cameron. He's got a touch Tony Blair about him, doesn't Enormously he? reminiscent of Blair. It's exactly what Blair would have done with that case. But Blair would then have gone on to say, and as a result, you know, I'm extending ASBOs to, I don't know, you know, parts of Nottingham where they never reached before. There would have been a policy addition to the emotional story. The emotional story would have been for a purpose, and that's what you kind of felt wasn't here. We haven't also mentioned the thing that probably will be on the news, which is when he was talking about his uh, late son, Ivan, there was, a, and then praising his wife, Samantha, there was a genuine, I thought, catch in the voice, yep. uh, as if he was about to break, and, uh, and I think that will play on the News at 10 and the others, and it will be important. Johnny Friedland and uh, Gabby Hinslift there. So that's it from Manchester. But how did the conference go as we all head home? Well, it could have been a tricky one for David Cameron. It wasn't. Party discipline held on Europe and other things. They were invited to cheer all sentiments expressed in support of the poor. Not to ask too many questions how all this would be squared with all the cuts they want to make in public services. But all in all, David Cameron will be going home relieved. It's gone pretty well. No 
serious own goals, no outrageous hostages to fortune. I must say that the dividing lines between the parties are more clearly drawn now. Cameron wants to use this crisis to cut back the interventionist state, which he says means well but doesn't deliver. Gordon Brown and his allies, and whoever succeeds him as leader of the Labour Party, think there is a role in modern society, in a regulated market society, for the state to do great things for people which voluntary and private activity can't do. So uh, there's life in this election yet, and uh, before we meet for the conferences again, we'll have had one. Before you go, Mike, can you tell us what the highlights of the party conferences have been and where it leaves us as we go into the next few months before the general election? Highlights of the party conference season, John? Well, the one which leaps to mind, it's not going to surprise you or any listener, uh, Peter Mandelson's extraordinary performance in uh, Brighton, uh, the man whom the Labour Party uh, conference likes to treat like the, uh, uh, the wicked villain of the Christmas pantomime and hiss him whenever he came on so grateful on this occasion to be cheered up, given a vision of how Labour might dig itself out of its hole uh, in the coming contest. So that was an extraordinary spectacle. They learned to love him after all. Uh, At the Tory conference, I suppose it must have been George Osborne's speech. Uh, Osborne had a lot to lose uh, on this. His credibility with uh, the city and uh, his uh, affection uh, in his own party rank and file is not that strong. Uh, He gave them some pretty tough medicine about uh, cuts which need to come, kept reminding them they've got to look after the poor, one of the big themes of the week, and they took it quite well. Heaven knows how they're going to reconcile all these different things, but um, there it was. Lib Dem uh, highlight, I suppose it was the wheels coming off uh, Vince Cable's caravan a bit. I think Vince uh, left uh, Bournemouth. Three weeks ago, it seems even longer now, uh, with a slightly less uh, shiny star than he arrived on the Sunday morning. And of course, Parliament comes back on Monday after we've all had a couple of days uh, to recover. And um, we head for the pre-budget report and uh, Alistair Darling's version of cuts, which he will have to make in order to uh, get the debt down in the due course. And as um, George Osborne and David Cameron keeps reminding him, make sure that the markets don't panic and think that British uh, finances are out of control. Then they'll stop lending us money. Then we'll have to put up interest rates. And uh, it'll cost us all a great deal more money. There'll be less to spend for schools and hospitals. i better stop there. I'm beginning to sound like Mr Cameron. Thanks, Mike. That's Michael White in Manchester. And there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also on The Guardian's website today, Leo Hickman takes a walk along the River Lee, one of Britain's most polluted rivers, guardian.co.uk slash environment. For National Sign Language Week, we present the 10 signs you should know, guardian.co.uk slash G2. And Tom Waits talks to Zan Brooks about his part in Terry Gilliam's The Imaginarium of Dr Parnassus. That's at guardian.co.uk slash film. My name's John Dennis. Coming up in Guardian Daily, one and other, the artwork informally known as plinth. And then suddenly, like, a live chicken emerged from this <laughs> from this tent. <laughs> then, like, two inflatable dolls and, I think, an inflatable palm tree as well. But first, postal workers have voted in favour of a national strike. The dispute's over jobs, pay and services, and it threatens Royal Mail deliveries in the run-up to Christmas. There have already been a series of localised walkouts, and The Guardian's Stephen Morris spoke to striking workers yesterday outside Bristol Mail Centre. My name's Graeme Chris. 
Riddle and I'm an OPG on the uh, packet uh, section. So you're going to get, go on strike tomorrow, there's been a strike today, there's another strike on Monday in the Bristol area. A wave of strikes out here which will mean disruption for, for 10 days I'm told, for, for the mail round here. What, what do you think of the disruption you're causing? Well, I'm not happy about it because at the end of the day, uh, I mean this is my livelihood, but I think we need to look at the greater picture and I could very well be out of a job six months down the line. We know there's got to be change, we just want to be consulted about change and have some dialogue, uh, and, and that's not been possible. So what's the atmosphere like in there today? All we, all we want to do, or all, all, all the members want to see, is that the two parties get together and let's thrash something out. I think we've got a couple of maverick managers that don't seem to listen to the direction that's coming from, um, from uh, their superiors, if you want and are ploughing ahead with changes that make no sense at all um, and as a result we've been forced to take this this strike action locally. My name is Mike Newport, I'm a, I'm a delivery postman. How long have you been doing that? 22 years. So, so why? Why are they going on strike? Uh, majority of them have gone on strike because of the changes that Raw Mail want to bring into the industry. Quite a lot of them are on strike because some of the changes that's actually been introduced without agreement that's affected them personally. I know of quite a few people that are losing going to be losing between 60 to 100 pound a week some of these individuals are single parent families uh, they are going to be struggling to pay their bills to pay their mortgage even some are even fear of losing their house do you think the public's going to be behind you both what you're doing in bristol at the moment and when a nationwide strike happens I, I would hope that the public can understand the some of the problems that our members are facing not only through their personal issues but the actual dispute that we're in at the moment is about the industry that we're and the service that we're trying to protect and maintain as well. I mean, at the moment, people are getting their letters probably by about one, two o'clock in the afternoon. Raw Mail's plans mean that the letters will not be arriving in some cases until five, six o'clock in the evening. Um, now, for industries, you know, small industries that people that work from home and what have you, it's no good getting your mail four, five, six o'clock in the evening um, because you've then missed the post that you could be posting out on, on that same day. So effectively, it's, de- it's going to be delaying cash flow. There's a long tradition there, um, and it seems Raw Mail's plans are, are solely to drive the industry into the ground. Stephen Morris in Bristol. Well, Communication Workers' Union members nationwide voted 3-1 to one to walk out over changes to working practices, pay cuts and job losses. The union's general secretary is Billy Hayes. The first thing is we need an agreed vision for Royal Mail and there isn't an agreed vision for Royal Mail. What do we mean by modernisation? So this ballot result is about getting a shared vision for Royal Mail. When you've got a shared vision, it's easy to go forward in the right direction. What we've had at the moment is just arbitrary cuts, bullying and harassment. So it's about getting a shared vision. You get a shared vision, you get growth, you get growth, you secure jobs. Isn't there a problem um, with this in that you've got to kind of keep the public on your side and it's difficult for the public to kind of grasp that you're going to go on strike over something as nebulous as um, trying to define what modernisation and and an agreed vision might be? Well, I don't think it is nebulous, actually. I think it's quite concrete, really. I'll give you the the instance. Modernisation is not about 3,000 post offices being closed. Modernisation is not about the abolition of Sunday collections. Modernisation is not about taking the second delivery away and not replacing it with a better and more improved service. Modernisation is about improved paying conditions. It's about improved services to the public. We need more niche services. It's about tapping into the new technologies and seeing all the technologies complementing each other. That's what modernisation means. 
And, you know, it's not like we're roadblocked to change. Adam Crozier himself said a few weeks ago on Sky News, 60,000 jobs have gone out of the industry. So it's not like the union's sitting back and saying, you know, we, we're very concrete about what we want. Aren't you playing into the hands of private delivery services, competitors to Royal Mail, who, whose employees aren't lucky enough to belong to a trade union? Well, the first thing is we want them to be in a trade union. You know, that's everybody's democratic right to have somebody represent them at the workplace and the more people who are in unions maybe we wouldn't have as many problems as we have with the kind of casualized nature uh, of of some of the industries but you know all the competitors Royal Mail not one of them will deliver to 26 million addresses six days a week and at a uniform price Royal Mail is the only company that offers that service yes people will look at alternative carriers but at the end of the day you know for a successful postal sector you need a successful Royal Mail but a successful Royal Mail is not going to happen when uh, customers such as Amazon decide to take their business elsewhere. Yeah, that's true. I mean, no disruption to the service obviously impacts on, on, on uh, the service we provide and people will look at alternative carriers. But when we eventually uh, secure an agreement on, on the modernization of Royal Mail, and that's what this mandate gives us, 76% of the workforce have said they share our vision and not Royal Mail's vision. It's a failure of Royal Mail senior management to, to communicate their vision and to, to, to get the the workforce behind us, behind a, a shared vision of Royal Mail, that will help secure the future of the industry. And, you know, companies like Amazon don't use Royal Mail because they like the colour of our eyes. They use Royal Mail because it's an efficient service. Yes, strike action damages the service, but that's not what we're about. We're about securing an agreement that improves the future of the industry. I'm looking a bit more longer term. I mean, you've managed to defend the Royal Mail against the government's plans for part privatisation. But, you know, we might get a change of government next year. The Shadow Business Secretary, Ken Clark said that this strike was foolish and irresponsible. I mean, how do you plan to work with um, an incoming Tory government if that's well, what we, we get? You know, let's not forget it was a Tory government in 1994 that wanted to privatise Royal Mail and their own backbenchers. Uh, stopped that happening. You know, it was one of the things that uh, Michael Hesseltine singularly failed to do in terms of changing the company. And, you know, David Cameron, maybe if you want to look at privatisation, he's still got the problem of the pension fund deficit, which currently stands at $3.5 billion and could grow. So he's still got to tackle that problem. And he's still got to answer the question, how do you get modernisation into a labour-intensive industry? You do that by the, with the support of the workforce and so we're not a political party we exist to represent the people who are members of our union and you know we talk to anybody and we including david cameron about what we need for royal mail it was you know let's not forget uh, there was a tremendous cross-party consensus on post office closures and that's one of the reasons why i'm just about to go out to the a local post office and ask customers what yeah. they think i mean what would you say to customers who are inconvenienced by industrial action well the first thing is you know you've got to recognize that our members are inconvenienced by the fact that they don't want to be going on strike and i'd say ask your postwoman your postman or your counter clerk what's modernization under royal mail's ages been like how do you see the service improve and all we've seen in recent years, it's declined, declined, declined. We want to expand Royal Mail. We want to improve the services. And it wasn't the CWU that closed 3,000 post office counters. Well, I'm outside the post office opposite King's Cross Station in central London. Let's find out what uh, customers think of the decision to stage industrial action. 
I'm not getting all my mails and it's ridiculous anyway. I don't think that um, it's called for anyway, that strike. Right. A bit of a case, haven't they? They're not getting a, a fair wage, not getting a fair deal. Their, their jobs are at risk, so uh, they've probably got no choice. Do you, do you know what it's about? Well, job cuts, I mean, basically, and uh, their wages, they're not happy with their wages. You, you think we should be supporting them anyway? I think so, yeah. People rely heavily on the postal service, so it's going to be a problem in terms of taking the public with them. That's going to be the real thing. I think the strike hasn't hardly appeared in the media very much. I know that there's been a lot of restructuring in the postal service lately, and so really I'm more sympathetic with the postman. Every day virtually we're hearing more and more that they're striking and then obviously as a consumer it's just getting a bit much. I mean I assume they have their point but it's... <laughs> Do you know what their point is? No quite frankly I don't <laughs> and I'm just glad they can afford it to be perfectly honest because I couldn't afford so much time off from striking but... <laughs>
art students there, a few kind of crusties there, some f- friends and family of the of the person. It was a it was a kind of people who wouldn't normally be gathered in Trafalgar Square or or maybe made to feel welcome there even. It's a very different experience watching it in the flesh from watching it on the webcam. Yeah, very much so. I mean, that's one of the things that uh, my colleague Jonathan Jones doesn't like about it, that he thinks it's uh, it was kind of the Emperor's New Clothes because it looked more spectacular online than it did down in Trafalgar Square. But I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, what I thought was quite poignant about it is it does show that these these plinths were made for massive statues and the whole of Trafalgar Square is on a really huge scale. You've got these massive institutions all around, like the the National Gallery. And and what the project is showing really is that, you know, a person is really small among all that sort of finery. But, you know, he's giving them a place where they can sort of express themselves, where you can say what you like, where you can do anything. I mean, I think there was quite a lot a lot to it in the end. You could sort of read quite a lot of things into it. A lot of people chose the plinth to protest. You know, Trafalgar Square has obviously got a real history of, of protest from the Chartists to the poll tax riots. There's also the kind of Andy Warhol, you know, it really turned boredom into a kind of an art form. Again, something that Jonathan sees as negative, but I just think that, you know, a lot of great British culture has come out of boredom, you know, whether it's punk or Tony Hancock or, you know, I just think of the, the kind of Buzzcock song. You know, boredom has just always been a spur to great creativity. And I think you actually saw that on the plinth when people just had an hour to amuse themselves and hopefully other people as well. Who was your favourite plinther? My favourite by far was this guy called Gunter. I've just never seen anything like it in my life. He kind of came, he came on in this... Uh, head to foot lime green outfit with a lime green stocking mask over his face, did some kind of interpretive dancing. Then he got on this... Um, <laughs> Alarm bells ringing at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> then he got into this... Uh, he put up this quite big tent, got into it, and then this tent started shaking about really, really violently, agitating from, si- from side <laughs> to side like something in a cartoon. And then suddenly, like, a live chicken emerged from this <laughs> from this tent. <laughs> then, like, two inflatable dolls and I think an inflatable palm tree as well. Then he emerged, stripped totally naked, <laughs> threw himself in the um, in the kind of safety net that's around it. And then when the other person came on to take their turn, rather than go off on the cherry picker, he like jumped right off the edge of the plinth and streaked across Trafalgar Square, followed by like three policemen. <laughs> but it, was it art? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was art, but it was certainly entertaining. Alex Needham. Ian Chambers and Phil Maynard were the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.